If the liberals had wanted to, if they if if they had sort of had a genuinely held view that any semi-automatic firearm is uh, is, is sort of too much of a risk uh, for a civilian to use, they they could have banned those. And the fact that they didn't suggests quite strongly to me that this ban is really more about uh, perception and optics than it is about actually removing firearms that the government thinks is is dangerous from the market. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective addressing important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'll be your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this issue, we're going to talk some more about gun control, and I'm going to continue a series where I approach the um, topic of gun control in a scientific manner, where I I lay out a hypothesis about what I think uh, the evidence will show and then uh, move forward and try to interact with experts and learn a little bit more about what the data really say and what the policy should be. And maybe we can come together at the end of this series of talks uh, with a more nuanced understanding of the, the politics and the facts surrounding this important issue. In May of 2020, when the Liberals came out with a recent assault rifle ban, the CBC ran a series of articles on gun control. One of these was titled, Latest Gun Control Effort Isn't Merely a Failure, It Corrodes Trust Among Canadians. The author of this article is Toronto lawyer Jay Nathwani. Jay, welcome to The Rational View. Thanks very much for having me, Al. And thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed your article. Uh, it was enjoyable and, you know, really along the lines of what I strive for in the rational view here. And so I've decided to do a little investigation into gun control and get a flavor for the issues on both sides. So I've uh, invited a few people to come and talk. And I'd really love to hear a little bit of, about yourself first, your background, and particularly on how your views on guns may have evolved over time. Well, I'm a lawyer by training, though I don't practice uh, uh, criminal law. My focus is actually in, in construction law. So, uh, you know, professionally, this isn't something that I have any particular involvement in. It's, it's, it's more an issue that um, I, I guess I, I chose to write about because in my experience, I grew up in Toronto, which, you know, it won't surprise uh, anybody in, in Canada to, uh, to, to know meant that I grew up in an environment where there wasn't a lot of familiar, familiarity with firearms either among family members, friends, you know, anybody I, I, I knew growing up with in, in a big city like Toronto. Generally speaking, the experience of firearms is is a pretty negative one, right? It, you, you know, you hear about a, a shooting or something like that. Didn't grow up knowing anybody who uh, went hunting or, you, you know, was a recreational shooter or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the the environment I grew up in, the milieu I was surrounded with was very much what you would, I suppose, expect uh, for uh, most people in uh, in a big city in Canada, which is that I think, you know, culturally guns are viewed with a fair bit of suspicion. Indeed. And, and perhaps even the people who use them are, are viewed with some uh, some suspicion or, or, you know, lack of, at least a lack of familiarity. And most of the uses of guns in a city are illicit. <laughs> Well, that's—I mean, if, if certainly any use of the gun inside the city, with a, with a couple of exceptions. There was a—you uh, know, there's a—I think there's a there are a couple. I don't even know if they're all still existing uh, uh, shooting ranges in Toronto. I know that Toronto City Council 
a number of years ago made a big deal of shooting of, sh- of shutting down a shooting range that was located in uh, in Union Station that had hosted some uh, you know pistol uh, enthusiasts some some target uh, shooters mm-hmm. after a number of gang shootings in Toronto and you know it it was one of those things that uh, I I have you know never been a member of a pistol club or anything like that but I remember at the time you know just thinking like this was you're you're taking you're taking two entirely separate phenomena and you're punishing one group of people uh who are hobbyists for something that criminals are doing with you know an entirely unrelated set of of firearms you know the illegal guns that are smuggled into gangs from the United States pose a risk that that some aspiring olympian target shooter practicing uh, after hours at, at, at in a highly regulated environment in Union Station, just you know, there's no correspondence between the two. But that's the sort of reaction to guns that uh, would I think sort of be typical of of the city that I I grew up in, where you know, because the guns that you hear about in the news uh, or that you're familiar with in your your day to day life, or because you're not because you're not familiar with other types of firearms, uh, because the ones being used are and that you're hearing about are illegal guns, uh, you tend to view all firearms owners with uh, with suspicion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's almost like a cultural thing rather than a sort of a rational thing. Despite that, you wrote an article which is kind of knocking the gun ban, which you know may be an unpopular position amongst the city dwellers. I, I suspected uh, it is an unpopular position among city dwellers. And I, I think that that's actually one of the the main reasons for for the ban the i found that in in my experience firearms are sort of the one area of policy maybe not the only one but one of the very few uh where people who generally talk about how they're in favor of evidence-based policy you know who would criticize for instance uh the the conservative government under Stephen Harper for doing things like, you know, doing away with the uh, long form census or the, uh, you know, the mandatory long form census because it results in an inability to uh, collect information. And it's so important to have information to make evidence based policy, you know, that 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 sort of thing, the sorts of arguments we're very mm-hmm. familiar with and which actually I think have a lot of merit uh, in many ways. We want to have sort of evidence based policy. That's what I'm all about here in the rational view. Yeah, exactly. You know, people who are in favor of that in, in every other sphere of policymaking when it comes to firearms are are willing to ignore whether there's, you know, evidence or a logical connection between a policy and a desired outcome um, because it, it, there's this, you know, almost cultural suspicion of firearms owners, a distaste of firearms because of a, a, a complete lack of familiarity with it. And 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 it's good so to return i think to the, to the point that you were making it's popular in toronto it's popular in areas where uh in this case the liberals who are who are obviously the ones who brought in the uh the change want to win seats in a, in an election and that i think it, and it's something that i i spoke about in the article that's where i think we sort of get into some of the more more pernicious effects of of some of these changes which is that uh if people feel that uh, there are laws that are being brought in. We're talking in this case about uh, amendments to the regulations to the to the criminal code, criminalizing certain firearms. Um, if people feel that they're the target of the criminal law, uh, not because there is um, a, really a rational basis for doing that or an evidence-based basis for doing that, but in an effort to win votes, I, 
my concern is that beyond that just being bad policy, uh, which I think which I think it is on a uh, on the basis of, of the evidence, it also has corrosive effects on the social trust and the the ties that bind Canadians together. You mentioned that this is bad legislation, and maybe we could just go through why uh, you say that it's bad legislation in your article. Like, why does this particular gun not protect people? Why is it not uh, evidence based, in your opinion? There's a couple places to to start. One would be to say, you know, what does this ban try to? What does this ban really do? And it was presented as a ban on, uh, you know, military style firearms. And, you know, it's worth it's worth noting that, you know, real military style firearms, first of all, typically are ones that are, are fully automatic. And those have been banned in Canada for for decades. You can't get those. What this what this change to the criminal code regulations did was it banned a large uh, number of variants. There were about about a dozen sort of uh, basic uh, types of uh, semi-automatic firearms that were tended to be the more popular ones, including, the, for instance, the AR-15, which we hear a lot about um, yeah, from the United States, where it's, uh, it's sometimes involved in mass shootings. These are the most popular, I, I, as, as I understand it, they're sort of the most popular uh, semi-automatic firearms that sort of look like a military-style firearm. But what the ban didn't do was it, it didn't actually ban certain capability in uh, firearms with a certain capability. So you can still get a semi-automatic firearm that fires, uh, the, that, that holds the same number of cartridges in its magazine mm-hmm. that, that fires on semi-automatic mode. Uh, that's, that's just as accurate, just as potentially deadly. You just can't get the kinds that are listed in, uh, in these regulations. And the liberals, when they brought this out, talked about, you know, military style firearms, well, after this, after this ban was brought in, you could still get IWI Tavor, which is a civilian market version of the firearm that the uh, Israeli Defense Forces use, their standard issue uh, military uh, assault rifle. Wow. Um, you could still get actual military surplus uh, SKS rifles, um, which were manufactured in the Soviet Union or, or China and were their standard issue military rifles several decades ago. They're, they're semi-automatic. These firearms have all the capabilities of the uh, firearms that are being banned. They're just less popular. So you're, you, you're shifting. You're certainly criminalizing a number of the firearms that are out there, but you're not stopping law, you know, legal gun owners with the, with the right licenses from acquiring uh, the s- firearms with the same capabilities uh, in the future, you're going to shift the market to the to those new firearms. If if the liberals had wanted to, if they if if they had sort of had a genuinely held view that any semi-automatic firearm is uh, is, is sort of too much of a risk uh, for a civilian to use, they they could have banned those. And the fact that they didn't suggests quite strongly to me that this ban is really more about uh, perception and optics than it is about actually removing firearms that the government thinks is is dangerous from the market. From, from your description, it's either optics or a very embarrassing oversight. Well, I mean, it, it has to be said that there were, uh, you know, on the list there, uh, there were web forums, there was something like AR15.com or something like that. It was like somebody, there was a Facebook group uh, that, uh, you know, had a bunch of 
semi-automatic firearms enthusiasts or, or whatever, it, it, it had it sort of had the feeling like somebody had said to you know get the staffers to go and and find a list of every fire every kind of firearm that exists and then we'll just we'll just drop that into the regulation. Uh, it, it 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 didn't have it didn't read as if it was being made by somebody informed with a lot of knowledge about about firearms um, and that should I think raise a few alarm bells in terms of is this you know it's a pretty drastic policy for the people who are affected you know some they're taking a piece of property that you know they've maybe invested thousands of dollars into and you're saying if you take it out of your house you know you're you're in breach of the criminal code uh, you can get thrown in thrown in prison for this now you know maybe that's appropriate uh, under the right circumstances but if you're going to do that sort of thing I think it's incumbent upon uh, anyone who who wants to sort of wield that kind of of power and law to really say, okay, well, like, what are we trying to accomplish here? Uh, Is this is this really connected to it? Does it does this is this comprehensive? Is this logical? Are there glaring gaps in here that are going to render this ineffective? So, you know, why would we punish these people over here and uh, leave leave these gaps over here? And it didn't really, to me, pass any of those sorts of, of, of common sense tests. Yeah. You mentioned, um, in your article, um, that, you know, maybe magazine capacity is more important than whether the gun is so-called military style. And then you go on, as you say, to, to suggest that banning semi-automatic weapons may not be a bad idea at all. I think there's, there's an argument and I, uh, to say that, uh, semi-automatic rifles by their very nature do pose an extra extra risk, and I think that people who are critical of the the liberal ban, I think I think also have to be honest and and forthright about that. I mean, if you go back to, for instance, the Second World War, the American military, uh, U.S. Army soldiers considered it to be significantly to their advantage uh, that that the M1 Garand had, I think it was an eight round uh, clip, and that it was semi automatic, that they could uh, didn't have to didn't have to uh, operate a bolt on their rifles uh, between shots in the way that German soldiers did uh, with their uh, their bolt-action military rifles. So I, I think it's, you know, probably a little, it would be going too far, I think, to say that there's no conceivable situation in which a semi-automatic rifle doesn't pose a potentially greater threat uh, than a bolt-action rifle. I, I think you, you could make that argument. On the other hand, I think if you're going to ban something that has been legal for a long time, that you know a fair number of, of Canadians possess, uh, and that you'd have to pay to really be fair, you'd end up paying you know hundreds of millions of dollars uh, potentially in compensation. Um, I think you want to have not just well, there's a, there's a logical argument in my mind that I can conceive of to say this is more dangerous. I think you want to have some actual evidence, and the Liberal government didn't even you know, try to make that, make a, make an evidence-based case. And I think the, the inference probably to be drawn is that they didn't have an evidence-based case to make. So, you know, what would an evidence-based case look like? Well, I think you'd say, how many, how many homicides by firearm are there in Canada every year? How many of those involve rifles? How many of those involve semi-automatic rifles? And of those, uh, how many, um, were uh, in how many of those cases did the semi-automatic nature of the rifle have any effect mm-hmm. on uh, on the crime? You know, if it was if it was one shot with a rifle that that killed somebody, well, it doesn't matter 
whether they could, somebody could have taken a, a second follow-up shot faster. And, and then the other thing I think to ask is, of those cases, how many of those firearms were, were legally acquired in Canada? Because the biggest problem, in, in my view, that we have in Canada with firearms is not among, it's not firearms that belong to law-abiding Canadian firearms owners. It's firearms that are smuggled in from the United States. And that's the sort of, you know, the gangs in, in, in Toronto or in other, in other cities uh, where there's gang violence inv- involving firearms overwhelmingly are not getting their firearms. Um, they're certainly not walking into gun stores, taking, you know, they're not sure, taking sure. a firearms course and having a criminal background check and getting a firearms license and going into a gun store and buying them. And for the most part, they're not getting guns that, are, that even originate, uh, have an illegal source in, in, in Canada. They're guns that are being smuggled in from the United States. So if you get to that number and you say, okay, well, you know, what's, what's that number of, uh, homicides that are taking place in Canada from guns that would really be affected by this ban. Then, you, then you've got to look at the cost. Well, what's the cost of this ban? Well, how, how many millions of dollars are we going to pay in compensation to people for the fact that we've criminalized their property? And I, I would suspect that at the end of that sort of evidence-based analysis, there would not be a good case for, for this firearms ban. And I'd, I'd observed that the the incident that seemed to have sparked this uh, this ban, which was of course the uh, Porta Peak massacre in, mm-hmm. in Nova Scotia, which was a horrendous uh, uh, massacre, the worst in Canadian history. Uh, from from what I've seen, all but one of the firearms um, that were uh, used in that massacre were uh, brought in, sm- smuggled in from the United States. Um, and the uh, the perpetrator of that massacre did not have a licensed owned firearm, so all of those firearms in his possession were illegal. So it sort of makes you ask, you know, like, is this? Are we dealing with uh, the issues that underlie some of these 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 crimes that we're concerned about, or is this an act where, that allows the government to be seen to be doing something? Virtue signaling. And if it's the latter, then it it. I, I don't think that you can, if you just want to be seen to be doing something and you want to give somebody like a tax credit, you know, that's one thing. If you want to be seen to be doing something and you start criminalizing the property of thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of, hundreds of, thousands of Canadians, you know, that's a very different kind of government action. And I think as a, a much higher burden in terms of uh, the evidentiary foundation for doing that. It's very similar uh, you, we had the the long gun registry under under Kretchen back in I think ninety five is when they started that and, and then uh, Harper eventually shut that down. But they were you know they spent a billion dollars trying to register these guns and they have no evidence as far as I can tell that that made any effect whatsoever on gun deaths. I nor nor I think even from the outset was there a, a, a sort of a plausible logical connection. I mean that's another it, these are the sort of sort of twin examples of liber, liberal governments reacting to. You know, horrendous massacres, right? The uh, the the long gun registry was was a reaction to the Montreal massacre, mm-hmm. um, and uh, but but even at the time, there was no, I don't think, logical, articulable cause uh, or or uh, effect that 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 registry could have. I mean, you you so somebody has somebody has legally acquired um, their rifle or their shotgun, and you make them register it. How does that stop them from committing a crime with it? It doesn't. It's very lazy. It seems like it's just image um, maintenance rather than actually attempting to have an effect on the situation. Yeah, I mean, part of part of the issue with the the gun registry was that it was sold. The long gun registry was that it was sold as this 
you know, something that's going to stop crime. What it really was, was a potentially moderately useful investigative tool. I found a firearm. Uh, I don't know where it came from. And I can check now with this, with a, you know, based on the serial number of the gun, and it's potentially been registered at some point, I can see who the last legal owner of it was. Okay, you know, there's a, there's a marginal potential usefulness there for criminal investigators. Is that sufficient to justify angering, uh, you know, a lot of people who feel like, look, my, my, prop, my property is now being treated as, as sort of potentially criminal. Um, and on the other hand, the cost that was, that was associated, as you say, you know, a billion dollars. And, you know, the federal government in Canada has a very poor track record of, of program delivery. You know, it can't, you know, this is, we're a country that we, we can't acquire, we can't acquire goods for our military on any kind of a reasonable timeline. We can't, you know, you know, we can't get a gun registry going for less than a billion dollars. You know, this is this is keeping a list. We can't even pay our federal civil servants reliably and on time. So, you know, you've kind of got a you got a question with is whatever policy is being announced is it going to be implemented in a way that's efficient? You know, what are the real goals that can be achieved here? Instead, these these bans, whether it's the whether it's the registry, which is of course not a ban, um, or the more recent ban, are being oversold by a government, I think, that wants to be seen to be doing something. Um, but in situations where the real, the real solutions uh, or, or mitigative measures that you can take in response to these kinds of crimes are actually much more, more difficult. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to stop someone who, with, with significant criminal intent, from, from carrying out those crimes. But, you know, if you could reduce the flow of illegal guns into Canada... Uh, you know, that would be something. Um, but it would be very expensive to put, uh, you know, scan or scan every vehicle coming into this country. Um, or, or, you know, I don't, I don't know what technical measures could be put into place. But I do know that, that treating people who have gone through a very rigorous licensing process, it's not easy to get a license in, uh, in Canada for firearms. I think that's completely appropriate, especially not for, you know, restricted firearms like the AR-15. You know, taking people who've gone through that process and legally acquired firearm, acquired their firearms, and saying, uh, you know, you're now criminal if you take this out of the house. I don't, I don't see that that's really uh, addressing the causes of the crimes that are that are killing Canadians. Yeah, I think the, in my opinion, the the most effective use of funds, if we if we say that this is a risk that we want to tackle, is is basically to lobby for tighter gun restrictions in the US. Yeah, I think I think uh, I think that would be if if that happened it would be effective at preventing crime in Canada. I don't know whether it would be a, a useful uh, way of spending our money. Um, the the politics in the United States around guns are uh, so so polarized um, and uh, you know, it's I don't know what effect we could have on that. In fact, I I expect that having a bunch of Canadians come in and and try to try to prevent Americans from owning firearms might uh, play right into the uh, into the hands of the NRA in terms of their uh, their lobbying efforts. Um, yeah. One option that I've I've read is actually feasible to include biometric locks on all new guns, and that's been something that people have been lobbying for. And apparently, these are being developed in other countries, but the NRA has been pouring millions of dollars into preventing their use in the U.S. That's a, you know that's an interesting uh, issue, and um, I. I will confess that my, you know, my reaction to that, I, I've sort of seen some reporting on that. And 
you know, I appreciate that in Canada, with, with, almost without exception, uh, Canadian Canadian law does not contemplate the use of firearms for for self defense. You can't own a, a handgun, for instance, in Canada for self defense. If you if you the only way you can you can own a handgun or at least transport it out of your house is if you um, are a member of a, a target shooting club. So it's a very it's sort of a very different uh, milieu in Canada legally. You know, you're supposed to own a, a firearm in Canada because you want to go you know duck hunting or deer hunting or or whatever, or you're or you're a sports shooter. It's we're we're not a country that that embraces self defense as a, as a cause for firearms. But to the extent that there is a valid potential use of firearms uh, in self defense, um, and you know the city is not a good example of this, right? And city dwellers are not grow up in a milieu that's so different. They're not equipped to really, uh, or they're not, they're not equipped, but they don't they don't think about this, right? If you're if you're in the city and you dial nine one one, the police are a few minutes away. If you're in a rural setting and somebody is trying to break into your house or something like that, the police might as well be on a different planet in terms of how. But when what what happens between the time you place the call and the time that you get there? Maybe you do need firearms for for self defense. And in that case, I I understand the objection to sort of biometrics, which is you, you know that. The purpose of a firearm and the fundamental design, you know, what what every gun manufacturer strives for is that that firearm is going to fire reliably um, and accurately uh, when the trigger is pulled with a certain amount of force and not under any other circumstance. Um, I pick up my iPhone and I have the touch ID. Fingerprint scanner. And, you know, if my finger's a little bit sticky or, uh, you know, I just uh, got in some jam or something like that or um, or it's wet, I just washed my hands and not dried them well enough, that's, that biometric scanner is not going to work. The last thing you want with a firearm is that you, you need to use it. And because the biometric ID doesn't recognize your handprint well enough or, or there's some emergency and you need to give it to to somebody else to use, you know, that firearm doesn't operate. I, I can see, I could see the objection, certainly among Americans for whom it's, um, the, the defensive use of a firearm is a, uh, is, is a legitimate, is all, you know, a legitimate use in law. And, and the reason that a lot of Americans acquire firearms, I can see why somebody would object to that. I think that in Canada, it's 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 a, it's a slightly different legal environment. Well, not, it's a very different legal environment, um, and I think you you get into the question of well, how many of these firearms are are being used uh, by people who aren't their uh, their legal owners? Um, you know, I think when it comes to the you know illegal use of firearms, that that answer is probably uh, pretty high. Mm-hmm. Would you know, would they be unable to, to bypass these sorts of protections? I don't know. Um, you know, I think it's, it's an, it's an area that where there, there could be an awful lot of room for, for debate. It's, it's something that, you know, maybe should be considered. I don't have very strong feelings on it one way or the other. Uh, but I, I do think that I think it's, it's, I think it's very unlikely to, to gain any traction in the market, uh, in the, in the U S market, which is, you know, really the, in many ways, the relevant market, um, for the guns that are being used illegally here, uh, for the reasons that I, I, you know, talked about a couple minutes ago. Mm-hmm. I see one of the bigger benefits of that sort of thing is is preventing uh, accidents, like with children playing with guns, that sort of things. 
Yeah, I think that uh, the the children playing with with guns thing. I mean, you know, that's absolutely uh, you know you hear in the United States about you know a few hundred children a year uh, that, that that die by by uh, accidental discharge. That's something that I think can be much more easily prevented by any responsible uh, gun owner. I mean, you don't. The, the problem there is that there's a lot of Americans who who because of the culture around guns there. Um, and, and, you know, maybe a lack of, of awareness or education, store firearms incredibly unsafely. I mean, they, mm. people store firearms loaded under their bed uh, with the idea that, you know, in the middle of the night, if somebody bursts through the door, they just grab their, grab their gun and, and, and go to town. Um, and then their kid is playing in the day and they look under, under the bed and they, they pull out this, this loaded firearm. I mean, it's just unbelievable negligence that leads to these sorts of, of accidents. A, a firearm that is just a traditional firearm that's safely stored with un, unloaded, the, you lock up the ammunition uh, in one container, you lock up the firearm in another, or you've got a trigger lock on it, more than addresses, I think, any, any of those sorts of concerns. You don't need uh, an expensive, um, sort of untested, potentially unreliable uh, technological solution. Uh, all you need is people to be uh, be responsible. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And and so it's it's the difference between people that uh, feel they need to sleep with their guns and the people that feel they can store them safely. Yeah, exactly. You you make a good point in your article, and this is kind of the thesis of it. The legislation seems to be pandering to the liberal base and angering political opposition for no real benefit to society. And I love your quote that you put. A healthy democracy relies on citizens believing that they will not be treated unfairly if their side loses an election. We should not be putting that trust at risk. It's not too much to ask that firearms laws be made on the basis of evidence and reason. And this, of course, resonates with the rational view. And this sort of partisan game playing is increased polarization. We've seen the effect of it uh, down south in the in the democratic process, I think. Uh, and I think that's a key uh, observation that we should be opposing this sort of partisan game playing. Yeah, uh, I, I think that regardless of uh, of, of where uh, where you sit on the debate in terms of is it you know is more is more stringent gun control a, a good idea or a bad idea? Um, I think that it's incumbent upon us to insist that that policy be made on the basis of, of evidence and, uh, and, and that it be made in sort of a coherent manner and a ban that, uh, as, as the liberals recent ban did ban some firearms, but not others with identical characteristics sends the message to the people who own these firearms that this is, this is purely, um, a political action, uh, design. It's, it's, it's not, it's not anything to do with the uh, the actual uh, actually with public safety, and the effect of that is is more than just to create a ban that isn't particularly useful. It, the message it sends is: we're punishing you by criminalizing your property uh, simply because it's it's good for us politically. It plays well with our it plays well with our base. It'll help us to win win some some swing ridings, and when when people feel that uh, that their government is punishing them because it can, because it's good politically, uh, and that their fellow citizens are are applauding that because uh, you know they, there's there's 
sort of a complete lack of empathy there uh, between citizens. I think that's really corrosive of, of social trust. I think that as citizens of a democracy, we need to be able to uh, to trust that if if the other side wins an election, while there may be policies that we don't like, um, there may even be policies that aren't that aren't good for us. I mean, there's always winners and losers in uh, in, in in public policy. That those policies are being are being put into place um, in good faith and on the basis of uh, you know some kind of a, a real uh, effect that they're going to have. If it's if it's being done to win votes, it, and it makes it makes people trust the other side of the of the political uh, political aisle less. You know, people who are who own these firearms who will tend to be uh, you know more conservative. They'll tend to be more rural. Will look at their fellow citizens who live in cities and who uh, who you know sort of applaud these uh, these measures that don't affect them or anybody they know. And, you know, they're going to resent, they're going to resent those people. They're going to resent the urbanites who uh, have, you know, never fired a firearm in their life and know nothing about them, who applaud a, applaud a law that is uh, criminalizing the property of them or their neighbors that has real effects. You know, that drives wedges between, unseen wedges between people in, uh, in society. You know, it's, it, it, it's it's very it's very destructive uh, in ways uh, that are hard to measure and hard to quantify. I think the the bigger issue is uh, it makes people feel targeted, um, you know, simply for being for engaging in a in a pastime uh, that their you know urban brethren don't have any time for, don't have any uh, any appreciation of, and, and don't really like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's. Uh, more harmful in the long run than uh, than you know any any anything to do with whether it actually is effective as gun control. Yeah, and we're lucky in Canada as compared to the U.S. that we don't have a huge gun problem, and you know it's not you know we don't have all these school shootings and all this horrible um, tragedy. You know, we have six times less gun violence per capita in Canada than the U.S. I mean, it's, it's just not high up on our list of things that kill people here. Uh, and that's good. <laughs> so I, I agree wholeheartedly that public policy needs to be more rational. It seems that it's very, it's been, it's very easy in the current um, milieu of journalism and, and sound bites to do lazy image manipulation rather than useful uh, policy making. And I'd, I don't know how do we how we counter this and, and drive it back in the other direction. But what what would you like to see happen and uh, to help that? That you know that that's a good question and it's and it's, and it's a hard one to answer. Um, I think that one of the ironies of this policy is that you know Justin Trudeau is I think probably more than any other politician in Canada uh, built his self image around the idea of empathy, and I think that. When you're when you're bringing in a, a, a policy that has significant effects on, on on other people, I think there's a duty to try to empathize with the uh, the other side of uh, of a debate. Uh, try to see things from their perspective. That that goes both ways. It's not just it's not just in this one one way on this debate. But for people who sort of instinctively uh, distrust firearms and, and and you know want to see look at any kind of gun control measure is probably a positive thing. What I'd say is try to put yourself in the position of, of, of somebody else, somebody who 
uh, has spent hundreds or, or thousands of dollars on a firearm uh, that they can only transport, you know, by law in Canada, it's re- restricted firearms are, you know, very tightly regulated. You can't, you, you need a, a, an authorization to transport that firearm. Uh, you got you take it from your house to the, to the range and back, you know, that's, it's, it's a, it's a very, it's a very tight regime. Put yourself in the position of somebody who has subjected themselves to, to all those regulations, complied with them, spent a lot of time and money doing it because they, uh, have a, a pastime a hobby that they that they really enjoy. You know, they lock up their firearms safely. They're far less they're far less likely uh, to uh, you know statistically they're extremely unlikely to engage in any kind of of, of violent crime. Uh, I think they're less. I think firearms owners in Canada are statistically less likely than the majority of Canadians to engage in in in, in violent crime. Put yourself in their position and then. You know these laws come in, and uh, and their their property is criminalized. Their pastime is uh, uh, is affected uh, as a result of and and you know wh- why is this being done to me? Well, it's being done to me because somebody who acquired firearms that were illegally brought in from the United States mm-hmm. committed a massacre, mm-hmm. or it's being brought in because gang members who you know illegally acquired firearms from the United States shot somebody like. You know how do, how would that make you uh, feel? And I and I think that look, it's not these debates when I and there there's a bit of a you know paradox here, which is that I'm saying I think policy needs to be based on on reason and evidence. I'm also saying you should try to think about how the other side feels. So it's not to say that that uh, we subordinate reason and evidence to people's feelings, but if that but. If that policy, but if that policy is going to antagonize your fellow citizens, I think there's a real duty then to ensure that it's based on on reason and evidence. The example that I use in the uh, in the column, because I think it, it's one that might resonate more readily with Canadians, is imagine that uh, in a decade or so, electric cars are uh, much more popular. They're cheaper. You know, the technologies come along. It might make sense, or it might mo- might not make sense for the government to say we're going to we're going to ban uh, gasoline diesel powered cars. Uh, we're going to we're going to move all all to you know electric cars. You can have a debate about whether that's a good idea or not. But imagine that the government said you know, you know a a for- we're going to ban a Ford Explorer, but not a Chevy Suburban. You know, take to take two vehicles that have you know let's say they have identical fuel economy. The unfairness of that. Would I think be readily apparent to uh, to anybody? Uh, they'd say, "Well, look, maybe maybe it's maybe these vehicles are bad for the environment. Maybe they're dangerous. Maybe they should be banned." But it can't be the case that you ban some models but not others that have the same fuel economy. I mean, how can that be right? And you know, the argument that I, I sometimes heard is, "Well, but it's a step in the right direction. You know, it's doing something." I, I think that this example might help to bring out. Why that argument, uh, I think, doesn't hold water, that you either have to be consistent, uh, the, the policy either has to, has to have a certain internal consistency to achieve its desired ends, or it's just arbitrary. It's not like a step in the right direction to ban, you know, in this, in this example, uh, some cars that have a certain fuel economy and not others. Mm-hmm. It's, it's arbitrary. It's unfair. And that's what, in my view, uh, this this gun ban is, because of its sort of slipshod uh, technical basis. 
it's it's the kind of thing that you that you that you do if you just want to be seen to be doing something. You don't really know that much about firearms, so as I say, you get some some intern in in the minister's office to go and look up every variant of an AR-15, and a Facebook group ma- makes it in. I mean, these are not indicia of a of a ban that's uh, a law that's carefully crafted and well thought out. It seems it was highly opportunistic exactly. based on the situation of the shoot mass shooting. And someone said, hey, we can get a gun ban in place without pissing off too many people right now. Yeah, well, and crucially, without without pissing off people who uh, who are potentially going to vote for us. And this is this is one of those those aspects of it that I think is so is so corrosive is that. Uh, yeah, it's probably going to be politically good for for the liberals in places where they're competing uh, for ridings with the NDP uh, or or with conservatives, maybe among suburban voters for whom, you know, they're more on the, the liberal side of this issue than on the conservative side of this issue. Yeah, that it's, it's going it, to the people it'll, it'll piss off are not the voters that the liberals are chasing. But I think democracy demands more of us uh, in terms of um, policymaking, certainly when it comes to the use of, of, of criminal law, then to say, is this angering people who uh, are, are going to hurt us in an election? Or is it just angering, you know, people on the other side who we never really liked anyway? Agreed. I think that's 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 good. And I think maybe we'll have to end there or run out of time. So thank you for joining me here on The Rational View and presenting your opinions. Uh, really enjoyed speaking with you. It's been a pleasure, Al. Thank you so much for having me. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page and becoming a patron of this podcast at patron.podbean.com/slash/the-rational-view.